This is a reading from the Gospel, from the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, found on page 888 of the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than the fa- our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, My name is Greg. I am a uh, uh, one of Liberty Communion's many Residents. I am uh, a few weeks ago. You got to hear from another one of our residents, Anthony. Um, he's also a, a resident at, at Liberty Harrisburg. Um, Anthony's he's a homie. He's he's awesome. So uh, I'm glad to be here with you this morning. Um, before we dive into God's word, would you mind praying with me, Father? As we open your word this morning. I ask that you would send your spirit now to show us your son, what we know not teach us, what we are not make us, what we have not give us, for our Savior's sake. Amen. Um, When I was in elementary school, 
I had these three little skin tags on my neck, kind of like moles, but they stuck out further. And, um, and I was so ashamed of them. I was embarrassed, as you can imagine an elementary schooler would be. And it was all I wanted in life to like convince my parents to finally get them cut off. And one day, I, I uh, was finally able to convince my parents to get them removed after like a decade of learning to like bend my head, turn my shoulder, talk at an angle so that people didn't see these what I thought were like horrible monstrosities. And um, finally I got them removed and I, I remember thinking the night before that dermatology appointment, I, I remember thinking standing in my parents' bathroom like close to the mirror, hands pressed against the cold sink, leaning forward, thinking to myself, like finally, life is gonna be perfect. So many girls are going to like me. And um, I'm probably stating the obvious to say that that did not happen. Uh, the good life that I thought would be on the other end of that dermatology appointment turned out to be a good bit of a letdown. There was a, this was a distinct moment in my life because it was the first time that I remember longing for something with like my whole being, wanting it, finally getting it, and then being totally disappointed. Now, it wasn't the last time. That has happened hundreds of times since then, but it was the first that I can remember. I'm guessing that you know what this feels like. Probably not, or maybe, but probably not with skin tags on your neck, maybe with something else. I think that we're all kind of familiar with the feeling of longing for something, grabbing it, having it to kind of like turn to smoke in your hands and then disappear, reappearing on the other side of the room just out of reach. Right? Like the, the new house is magnificently satisfying for like the first year. And then other people's homes start appearing nicer and larger than they used to. Or your marriage is like this like idyllic, picturesque model of love. It is a romantic masterpiece until like you have that first big fight a few weeks after the honeymoon or in my case on the honeymoon. <laughs> the new car, the article of clothing, the boyfriend, the long-awaited retirement, the driver's license, role in the play, spot on the team. All of these things make us so happy Right, until they don't. And then we're left back where we started, grasping at straws, chasing the wind, restlessly fascinated with novelty and improvement. You're familiar with this feeling. We all are because what water is to a fish, competing versions of the good life are to Western people. We swim surrounded by competing ideas of what it means to be full and satisfied. We all live in this cultural moment where it seems like every direction we turn, someone new is shouting in our ear like, this is it. No, this is really it. This is the solution to all your existential angst. This will finally give your existence and your life like, real meaningful purpose and value, fulfillment. Every commercial you see promotes a version of the good life. Buy this product and you'll be happy. 
Every movie, TV show, book, billboard, boss, company, advertisement, motivational speaker, me right now, everyone implicitly assumes a version of what it means to live a good, full, and fulfilling life. And so you hear these things, never really explicitly, but all the time right under the surface, like the good life is having a lot of money, retiring early, being financially independent. The good life is... Wearing a deodorant that causes women to flock to you like moths to a light bulb. The good life is being able to express your authentic self freely. The good life is helping others. The good life is being well-respected in your community. The good life is leaving a legacy for your children and their children. The good life is raising your kids to treat others well. Competing versions of the good life are the waters that we swim in. And what's more, not only are we swimming in these competing versions of what it means to live a good, full, and fulfilling life, our culture is impressively designed from the bottom up to keep us from anything resembling serious self-reflection. We live these kind of perpetually distracted, hurried lives that keep us from stopping and reflecting on the fact that the versions of success that we've bought aren't worth the money we paid, and they leave us at the end of the day feeling exhausted, in a hurry, and a little bit jittery from all the caffeine. Right? The demand for efficiency, productivity, achievement, together mixed with like the imminence of technology, the endless scroll the relentless connectivity mixed together to form a poisonous cocktail that is brilliantly designed, first, to get us to buy some version of the good life, and second, to keep us too busy, too distracted, too entertained to stop and think or realize that the version of the good life that we bought is garbage. And so we don't ask ourselves the deeper questions like, why do we buy the idea of success and meaning in the first place? What do we want by wanting? What do we want when we long to change the world? What are we really wanting when we long to be noticed? What is it we really desire when we long to belong to a community? What do we want when we crave intimacy? The question I want to ask this morning, and then we're going to use that text that we just read in John 4 to answer, is this. What does Jesus of Nazareth think the good life is? And I'm just going to tell you the answer up front here. The answer I'm going to try to use John 4 to illustrate is Jesus of Nazareth thinks the good life is the life that is centered on him. We all have a center, right? For many of us, it's our family. Jesus, I'm going to argue, thinks that the life that is good, full, and fulfilling is centered on him. So follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And as he had to pass through, and he had to pass through Samaria, and so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, just a few background things to notice here. 
First, when does this take place? It takes place right about at the sixth hour. The sixth hour would have been exactly at noon. Now, this is strange for a few reasons. First, it's strange because this woman is entirely alone, which is incredibly dangerous for a woman in the first century. Women, even today, tend to go to the bathroom in packs. But back then, they always went together because it was dangerous for a woman to go somewhere alone. Secondly, it's odd that she's there at noon. Like, nobody goes to fetch water at noon. Noon is the hottest part of the day. And it's an arduous task to, like, lower the bucket down into the well, pull it all the way back, carry that thing all the way back to your town in the middle of the day. Nobody would do that. You would go in the morning or in the evening, the coolest parts of the day, not at noon. So before we even hear this woman speak once in the narrative, John is painting a picture for us that for some reason this woman is a social outcast. She's going out of her way at the hottest part of a day to avoid other people. Before she even says a word in the narrative, John wants us to feel that this woman is breaking her back, carrying around some mysterious burden of shame. We're also going to read in a second that she's a woman from Samaria. Now, this might not mean a ton to modern ears, but this would have been bewildering to an ancient audience. Before we really grasp the weight of this conversation that's about to take place, we've got to understand the first century relationship between Jews and Samaritans. Think like relationship between uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Not a great relationship. But for you young people, it's like Kanye and Pete Davidson or something like that. So back in the Old Testament, the promised land is split into two kingdoms. So Judah is in the south, Israel is in the north. And the way the geographical boundaries kind of shook out placed the, the capital, Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom of Judah, which meant that the northern kingdom didn't have a capital. And so in, in 1 Kings 16, they make a capital, and you know what they call it? Samaria. So you have two kingdoms competing for their Jewish identity, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, Samaria in the north and Judah in the south, which means that there, there is a long history of infighting for their Jewish identity. Add on top of that, in about the year 722, the Assyrians capture Samaria and settled in the land, which means that the Israelites left there intermarried with the Assyrians. They began worshiping their gods. Which all of this led to the Jewish people in the south, living in Judah, to view the people from the city and the broader region of Samaria as like racial half-breeds, half-religious, half-political, traitors, half-faithful to Yahweh. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as political, ethnic, and religious traitors. And this conflict, by the time Jesus is meeting the Samaritan woman here at the well, has been going on for well over 700 years, often in resulting in extreme violence between the two groups. John wants us to feel the tension of this situation. So Jesus speaking publicly with a, with a Samaritan was countercultural enough. Add on top of that that this is a rabbi speaking to a woman one-on-one, -on -one, and to first-century ears, this situation is almost unthinkable. It's scandalous. 
Rabbis did not speak to women like this, let alone Samaritans. Let's read their conversation. John writes, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This woman is caught up. She can't see past the ethnic and religious categories of the day. She kind of interrogates Jesus, like, why would a Jew, why would you ask a, me for a drink? Do you not know the cultural, like, scenario in which we're living? Now, look how Jesus responds to that. Does he answer her question about why a Jew would ask for a drink from a Samaritan? Not at all. In fact, he ignores it altogether. Instead, Jesus peers deeper into this woman's identity than that. He sees beneath the 700-year-old racial divide, not to the fact that she is a Samaritan, not even to the fact that she is a woman, but to the fact that she is an image of God who needs living water. To Jesus, this woman's not primarily a woman. To Jesus, this woman is not primarily a Samaritan. She's a precious, dignified image of God in need of restoration. And like, this is an aside, but it's worth a brief mention. Right, the first thing that Jesus sees when he sees us is not our race or our gender. It is that we are images of God who need living water. Just a question. Is that the first thing you see when you see somebody that doesn't look like you? It, it, like, just hypothetically, if someone were to walk into this room wearing, like, a Make America Great Again hat or a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, whichever one of those two upsets you more, what would be the gut reaction of our hearts toward that person? Would we see them like Jesus sees them, as precious, dignified images of God in need of restoration? Or would we not be able to see past the hat or the t-shirt? Because this is how Jesus sees people. He sees that she's been looking for the good life and finding nothing but disappointment, and so he offers the good life to her himself. See, what, what Jesus is talking about when he refers to living water is himself, the Old Testament background for that is clear. Jeremiah says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. This is what Jesus is referencing here. And they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In essence, Jesus is saying to this woman, by quoting Jeremiah, I am the God of the Old Testament, and I am satisfaction. Jesus here is saying he is God in the flesh, come to give a never-ending source of life and fullness. And this woman just kind of misinterprets him and thinks he's talking about the hole in the ground. 
Jesus here is saying that life with him is the good life she has been searching for, and she just kind of crassly interprets what he's talking about as like magic water. So she says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Which is, that's hilariously ironic. Jesus has just referred to himself as God. And she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus sees this kind of miscommunication that's taking place, and he decides to put an end to it. And so he says in verse 16, Go, call your husband. In doing this, Jesus touches her, like, deepest level of shame. Right? You can imagine, like, Imagine what it would be like to be that woman for a second. To kind of go out of your entire way, to plan your day around not meeting people so you don't have to deal with this part of your life. And here comes this stranger who says, go, call your husband. We're all kind of familiar with these unexpectedly stomach-turning situations. I was with my cousin the other day, actually yesterday, and I noticed, like, his skin looks nice and, like, bronze and oily. And so I complimented him. And it turns out he's been using a lot of self-tanner that his girlfriend mocked him endlessly for once I complimented him. He didn't expect it. Also had situations recently where my family that I hadn't seen in a while asked me how my parents were doing, which is how I got to break the news of my parents' divorce to them. We know what these situations look and feel like. When a cousin sees you and asks, did you decide on a baby name, but they didn't hear that you had lost the baby. These kinds of situations where someone unintentionally unearths a sensitive subject happens to us all. The woman kind of just responds naturally like we would all respond with a statement that is like formally true but incomplete. She says, I have no husband. But unlike me and my cousin's self-tanner, Jesus didn't accidentally stumble onto the sensitive subject. He didn't accidentally stumble upon that woman's shame with a haphazardly asked question. He went there intentionally, not to mock her, not to belittle her. Like, we should note that this is a conversation that is private. Not even Jesus' disciples are a part of this. He went there because he knows that it is in the midst of her maximal shame that God can bring the maximal healing and restoration. He knows because it's in our areas of deepest shame in our lives, those things that like, we would never tell anybody about, that we all have, let's be honest. Those things that if I like, put them up on the screen right now, you would want to walk out of this room and never see anybody again. Jesus responds to her and says, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, anytime 
numbers, like five husbands, are used in John, we should pay close attention. Throughout Scripture, numbers, especially with John, are associated with specific meanings. And this is true, especially here in, for John and for Revelation. Uh, the number seven, for example, is the number of, like, fullness and perfection. God's number is the number seven. So, like, God creates everything, and then he rests on the seventh day. And he commands Israel, therefore, to set aside the seventh day as a day of holy rest. And this explains why, like, in the book of Revelation, what's the number of the beast? It's 666. Not because people are going to have it, like, tattooed on their foreheads or anything, but because 666 is a perversion of the perfect number 777. So, like, John is trying to communicate with his audience through numbers that that the beast is going to be like a counterfeit deity. He's going to be like God, but a perverted version of it. The real God is perfect, 777. Satan is a fraud, and he tries to make himself look like God as an angel of light, but ends up perverting, which is good. And here in our text, we read that this woman has had five husbands. And the one she is with now is not her husband, which gives us how many men? Thank you. I don't think it's incidental there are six men. Six is the counterfeit number. She has been living a counterfeit good life. She has looked for intimacy and belonging and found like only casual sex. She was longing to be known and loved and found that the men in her life didn't care to know her and just wanted to use her. Six men in her life she thought were going to be the good life and ended up only being a letdown and a disappointment. Six men have seen her not as a dignified image of God, but as a tool to be used. Each, after the next, probably felt to her like, this is finally it. This is going to be the one. And it wasn't. Her past has been so defined by these six men that she's been going to the well in the middle of the day, carrying a burden of shame so that other people don't have to see the look of shame that is like perpetually etched on her face. But here in John 4, this Samaritan woman meets a seventh man. She meets a seventh man. This man is a rabbi who couldn't care less about the social customs. A rabbi is not speaking to women. He engages her like a person in conversation. He doesn't take from her like the other six do, but offers to give and to give her the good life, the life that she was designed to live, namely life with him, the Messiah, at the center, and she accepts the author, offer. This is a happy story. She accepts the good life. Right At the end of this narrative here, John notes that this woman leaves her water bucket behind, almost as like a sneaky kind of like literary way to say she came thirsty, and found a well of living water far beyond anything she could imagine. Now, I am, I'm well aware that one of the byproducts of like me standing here saying to you, this is the good life, in the midst of a culture that kind of implicitly does the same all the time, means that it's easy to be cynical about when somebody explicitly does it, like me. But I think there's something to be said for centuries of Christians who have said the exact same thing. Like, like this is not new information. 
This is not a new, innovative theory. So in the first century, Jesus offers himself to a Samaritan woman. And ever since, for thousands of years, Christians have been saying that there is good, true, living satisfaction in Jesus Christ. In the fourth century, Augustine, in the opening paragraphs of his confession, says to God, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. In the 6th century, Boethius argues in his Consolation of Philosophy that money, power, fame, all these things lead to what he calls false happiness. But true happiness can only be found in perfect deity. In the 11th century, Anselm, in the ending paragraphs of his Proslogion, writes, I have found a joy that is more than full. It is overflowing. Blaise Pascal in the 17th century talks about all these things that we try to fill our life up with, and then he writes, but all of these are inadequate because the infinite abyss in our souls can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. C.S. Lewis in the 20th century called the autobiography of his conversion surprised by joy, not surprised by forgiveness, Not surprised by mercy, not surprised by heaven, surprised by joy. In other words, the consistent roar of Christianity throughout the ages is not that Christianity is a rule-keeping, buzzkill religion that squelches joy, but a religion of life that gives us joy in the person of Jesus in a way that we were always meant to have it. Again and again and again, people throughout history have stumbled upon the living water, which is Jesus Christ, and been filled with a joy and a fullness indescribable. And yet so often, like here we sit with our modern enlightened minds, thinking that we know better than Jesus and centuries of Christians, and that that new, like fill in the blank with whatever you want most right now, will finally bring us peace. Like how often do we sit and scorch ourselves in the deserts of like dissatisfying things rather than leap into the cool, endless ocean of Jesus' living water. When I was at, um, when I was in college, there was this walking trail that went around campus. And every once in a while, when I would need like a break from studying, which um, didn't happen often, not because I needed break. I, I didn't study often. Um, I would, like, go out and walk around the trail uh, just kind of by myself to get some peace away from people. And um, my freshman year, I probably walked that thing maybe a 100 times. Um, it, it almost became a part of me. It, like, grew so familiar. My junior year, I began dating um, Alexis, who, who would eventually become my wife, And we would then also, we would go on walks on that trail, holding hands, sharing stories. There was this bench by the creek that flowed through campus that we sort of like adopted as our bench. And we'd sit there, watch the water, talk for hours. And it was, like, it was funny, right? Like, I had walked that trail probably at least dozens of times before on my own. And yet, when I walked it with Alexis, it felt like an entirely different trail altogether. Like when I was with her walking that trail, it felt like I'd never walked it before. 
it felt like everything was perfect. Like, like everything was splashed now with colors of vibrance. Like before I had walked in, it was like in black and white. And now it was in like, it was in color. Every flower seemed perfectly placed. Every bird sung at like the perfect pitch. It was all somehow infused with beauty and meaning. And I loved that trail more than I ever did before. Not because the trail had changed, but because my center had changed, because of who I was with. I think having Jesus as living water is similar. Satisfaction in Jesus doesn't merely or often look like this spontaneous, irresistible urge to just like read your Bible and pray for 12 hours a day. More often than that, it looks like correctly enjoying the trail correctly enjoying everything that he has given us with him at the center. And it turns out, like, actually, if you love Jesus more than your family, you will end up loving your family more than if you had loved your family more than you loved Jesus. Because having him at the center infuses us with joy. All of life becomes beautiful. Food, sex, video games, friendships, wine, art, campfires, movies, sunsets, all of it fits together to bring us joy, but only after these things find their proper proportion in Jesus Christ and the life he calls us to live. Sometimes in our, like, evangelical, reformedish circles, we present the gospel as if, like, the whole gospel is this. It's like, God is holy, you are a sinner, you deserve to die, Jesus died for your sins so that you can trust in him and that when you die, you don't have to go to hell. I think the essence of the gospel, that's true. The essence of the gospel is a lot more beautiful, dynamic, and relational than that. The core of the gospel is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's not how Jesus sees it. That's not how Jesus preaches the gospel. Jesus' good news, especially here in the gospel of John, is more dynamic. It includes that, but it's not the core. For Jesus, the core, the essence of the gospel is that we get him. We get fellowship with him, and therefore all of our lives can become properly ordered in response to that. It's less about going to heaven when we die and more about bringing heaven to earth now through fellowship with Jesus. Eternal life is less about how long you live, but more about who you are living with. Christianity is less about what happens if you die and more about what gets to happen if you live. Jesus Christ is the gospel. He is the good life. And that that living water that he offered that Samaritan woman 2,000 years ago, he stands this morning ready and willing to offer you now. Here's the catch, is that just like that Samaritan woman, before we really taste the joy that Jesus offers, often we're going to have to let him walk into our areas of deepest shame. Are you willing to do that? If you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, like first just let me say, welcome, I am so glad you're here. Uh, The Liberty Communion of Churches is a good place to be. I would just implore you to ask yourself this question. Like, are you happy? Are you satisfied with your life? If not, 
This is a story about a man who at least claims to give you satisfaction beyond your wildest dreams. Maybe it's not true, but at least it's worth something considering. It's worth considering it. And if you are a Christian, are you willing to let Jesus walk into the midst of your shame? Because when he does, he has a a pattern of redeeming it. Like skin tags and all. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are not a God who decided to remain distant, but that you sent your son clothed in flesh to show us what life ought to look like. Thank you for the salvation that is found only in him. Would you send your Holy Spirit right now Direct us toward Jesus. Show us the areas of shame in our life that we ought to invite him into. And would you do what only you can do and redeem it? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Greg. I don't know about you.